Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast for Tuesday, August 30th. Derek Van Riper here with Al Melchior. It's our last official prospect Tuesday of the season. A slight schedule change next week. Minor league season is winding down, so we're going to have three episodes of the show each week instead of four. And the day we actually take off from the current schedule will be Thursday. So we'll go Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday. But the conversations we've been having on Thursdays will move into the Tuesday spot, if that makes any sense to anyone. So hopefully that is somehow uh, a good bit of information to pass along. But on this episode, we're going to dig into some prospect news and injuries like we do each and every week. We're going to take a look at some hitters and pitchers that have really change their stock over the course of this season across the minor leagues. So a mix of, of higher-end prospects, some guys that have really popped up and put themselves on our radar for a future call-up, uh, just a good grab bag of players that have really garnered our attention in some way over the course of the 2022 season. Beginning with the prospect news, the biggest of the prospect news is Corbin Carroll is up. and He debuted on Monday night, and he was a part of the biggest comeback in Diamondbacks history I actually had a two-run double that took a game that was at one point 7-0 and put the Diamondbacks on top, and they never actually let that lead go against the Phillies. But Carroll uh, going to play, I would assume, every day. He hit eighth in his debut, Al. I don't know why teams still do this. I guess it's to take the pressure off. But if you told me he's going to be in the first, second, or third spot in their order by the end of the season, I don't think I'd push back on that. I, I wouldn't either. And I wonder if, if maybe I made a, a bad decision this week because I mentioned, I think I probably mentioned on this show that I had been stashing him for a couple of weeks in a 12-team league. So I had my opportunity this week. I even had a, an outfield spot that was very much available, uh, but instead uh, went to waivers and decided to just do a wait-and-see week with Carroll. And obviously the debut was was very productive. It's a points league, so I think... He netted something like five and a half points on CBS. Definitely could have used that this week, but I just figured best to play it safe because is even though he's arguably the the best uh, best prospect in baseball, you just never know how long the adjustment might take. So especially with you know playoffs coming up, seeding at stake, and all that, I went the safe route. I don't know if that's if that was advisable. Yeah, you'll know at the end of the week. <laughs> <laughs> I picked him up only in one league because there's only one league where he was eligible and available for me. That was the 15-team mixed tout wars. Uh, it's an OBP league, but the rule in tout wars, for anybody who's not familiar with it, is if you add a player from the wire via fab, they have to be in your lineup the first week that they're on your team. He would have been on my team in my lineup anyway, 
but I actually have him going and I'm really excited about it. I had to use over 30% of a full budget to get him, uh, which was to me the luxury of just having some money at the end of the season that I wasn't going to spend anyway and being able to get a really exciting player that hopefully at least helps me in stolen bases. That's one of the hitting categories where I can still gain a few standings points. And the speed is as advertised. I saw the post-game interview as well. He seemed really calm for a guy that had just made his big league debut. Like, like very much comfortable in the moment. Uh, didn't have the, the the big eyes that a lot of players have uh, on debut. Didn't have that 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 caffeine high that some players are on. They're doing their post game interview. He he seemed like a guy that was almost uh, like he like he felt like he'd been there for a long time. Was the way I would describe it. But uh, nice debut from Corbin Carroll and a player that we're going to be talking about in fantasy communities probably for a very long time. Let's talk about Garrett Mitchell because he actually came up over the weekend for the Brewers, picked up his first big league hit on Sunday, hit his first homer on Monday. It was a big one because ended up tying the game and the Brewers held on uh, to eventually win against the Pirates. Mitchell does fill a bit of a need. And when we've looked at this group of outfielders, the Brewers have uh, currently stockpiled at AAA. We've wondered how long is it going to take for someone to take playing time from Tyrone Taylor. And with Mitchell, it does make a lot of sense because Garrett Mitchell can platoon with Tyrone Taylor if the Brewers want to do that. Defensively, he's a good defender, so you're not really giving up anything with the glove. And the biggest question we have, really, is when you start to look at the results so far for his minor league career, there hasn't been as much consistency with the in-game power as we would have expected, right? For a player that did grade out very favorably with raw power coming out of the draft in 2020. So some of the offensive performances have been lackluster this year. He had a 107 WRC plus at double A, which is fine, but for a 23 year old, doesn't get you that excited. 27.8% K rate moved up to triple A. The numbers got better across the board, pointing back to our, our longstanding recent concerns about uh, what the quality of triple A pitching is like. All this is to say, we have a player who's tooled up and probably hasn't shown us a full season anywhere yet where he's had his core skills all working simultaneously. So how interested are you in Garrett Mitchell as a possible end-of-season pickup in redraft leagues? Not very, I think, for 15-team uh, leagues and deeper that maybe there's some steals potential there. He's already stolen his first major league base. Uh, but yeah, I have very little faith that we're going to see the power this year and maybe not next year either, because, uh, it double a, you mentioned that the strikeout rate was, it was a bit elevated, but that was so far kind of his peak in terms of, of power, uh, with four home runs and 187 plate appearances, uh, made 85 plate appearances at triple a with just one home run, six doubles, which maybe gives you a little bit of hope. But what discourages me is just really high ground ball rates all the way through. So there's going to be some some sort of change there, I think, for him to deliver on the power. And so for me, I think it, the, the value is going to have to come from steals uh, for Mitchell in the short and in the longer term. Yeah, looking back at the stolen bases for him last year, high A and double A, he had 17 for 19 in 64 games. So he was running a lot and was very successful at those two levels. This year in the minors, 16 for 17 in 64 games. And I do think when we look at Mitchell's grow profile in the long run, that's going to be a, a carrying category for him. So I think my interest in him would be similar to yours, where it's probably a 15-team league. Uh, it's 
where I'm chasing stolen bases, most likely he's probably still going to be in the bottom third of the lineup for the rest of the season. It's not like the situation that Carroll has in Arizona where you can look at him and say he's one of their best hitters right now. I think Mitchell has a long-term chance of becoming a table setter, so that that's at least there if you pick him up in a keeper or a dynasty league or if you already have him in one of those leagues because there's been a good walk rate pretty much everywhere he's been. But that power and the swing and miss, those are the two things that we just don't know. Like How bad is the swing and miss going to be, and when will that raw power start to show up in games? Those are the, the great unknowns uh, with Garrett Mitchell at this point. But a nice start to his big league career uh, with that first home run already on Monday. Let's talk about Cade Cavalli. He debuted Friday against the Reds, and I think true to the scouting report, the command was a little bit shaky. We talked about him on the waiver show because start number two comes up this week against Oakland. Um, was there anything that you saw with Cavalli that surprised you in that debut, or is this just kind of the, the player that you thought he was going to be? Well, I expect that he will be better uh in starts like against uh, the A's. I mean, that's obviously a great matchup and you figure whatever jitters uh, that he might've had in the first start uh, will be there less so the next time around and and down the line. I I think I I would expect better performances. I, this is, I expected better from Cavalli than what he showed in his debut. Um, But I mean, I wasn't that surprised by the result either again, because we see this frequently with uh, players and uh, pitchers in particular making their their debuts, uh, command being a little bit off again. Maybe there there's some nerves there, uh, some adjustments. But I think we'll 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 get some usable starts from Cavalli uh, from this point forward this year, and that doesn't change my <laughs> my uh, feelings about uh, how valuable that he could be next year and beyond. Uh, certainly, just that one start doesn't matter. Yeah, it just seems like an important player for them in 2023, given their needs in the rotation and I think there's going to be strikeouts even if it's going to be with bumpy ratios initially still look at him as more of a matchup based starter down the stretch so if you're going to first come first serve league and you're looking for some innings I do think you could use him for that second start against the A's let's talk about Stone Garrett going back to the Diamondbacks for a moment he homered again on Monday the power and speed looks very real here the questions with Stone Garrett are about hit tool and maybe where he fits defensively in the outfield if he's good enough to be a viable option beyond left field. Uh, Garrett only had a 111 WRC plus at AAA, even though he hit 28 homers and stole 15 bases. Uh, 103 games with Reno this year. The slash line wasn't great. Part of the issue is that he doesn't walk as much as you'd like him to for a, a player that can do damage. How does Stone Garrett fit into this very crowded Arizona depth chart? And, and do you see just a, a tooled up fourth outfielder or do you see a future regular if the opportunity comes along? Uh, I, you know, I'm just going to kind of weasel out of this and say, I think, you know, my, I guess my expectation would be fourth outfielder, but based on what he's done the last couple of years in the minors and what he's done so far with Arizona, I, I'm sort of rooting for uh, him to be a regular and to be able to be uh, somebody that we could target for for power and speed and fantasy, uh, it's also just you know a cool story that he's a a player who's blossomed a little bit late in his career. Uh, but um, yeah, like you said, there are some concerns uh, in terms of the hit tool. He's got a forty five percent chase rate so far, which is a little bit of a red flag. But there are some very good hitters at the bottom of that leaderboard. If we look at the high rates being at the bottom. Uh, in terms of you know, Rafael Devers, uh, 
uh, Ryan Mountcastle. You know, there's some some good hitters who are very aggressive. So I don't think that's necessarily something that's going to disqualify Stone Garrett. But um, four barrels so far out of 19 batted balls. And this stat is really eye-opening. 73.7% hard hit rate so far. So you have to be intrigued by that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm looking at the strikeout rate over time. He has improved even though he's old for the level now for double A AA and triple A, we're at least seeing strikeout rates in the mid twenties that can possibly get him into like the low 30 range. When you kind of translate that to what's likely to happen against big league pitching, I think it is important to mention the O swing percentage. Like you said, there are good players that have a high O swing percentage and maybe part of what makes them good or part of what enables them to do damage is taking max effort swings and committing to pitches. So you're going to have this inflated O swing percentage, but you get the extra hard hit rate. You get the barrel rate in return. So with players like Stone Garrett, a lot of times it's, it's going to come down to what does the depth chart look like and how deep is the league? There are places where taking chances on this type of profile will make a lot of sense. It probably won't be a lot of 12-team leagues or anything like that in 2023 unless the playing time outlook is completely different. Uh, but we start thinking about draft and hold. We think about mono leagues. In those situations, I think he becomes a really interesting late player to have on your roster, even if he's sort of an up-and-down guy for them next season or an extra outfielder. As soon as someone gets hurt, with especially with Universal DH and the NL too, being the fourth outfielder is not quite the the curse that it used to be like that's one other thing that I think is is still a little fresh in my mind where I would look at him in the past and said yeah okay maybe maybe when he gets called up next year when the playing time opens up I'll be interested but now there actually are, are more formats in which I'd be interested in taking a chance on Garrett Eggy Rosario is up for the Padres it looks like he's stuck in a bench role which is kind of something the Padres are are comfortable doing. A lot of teams don't bring young players up like this and, and just use them off the bench, but I think that's exactly what's happening here. Rosario's very toolsy, 21 homers, 20 steals at AAA this season. Just turned 23 last week, so he's not old for the level. Uh, how excited should we be about Rosario in the long term, even if the short-term situation doesn't look that great? I think the long term is, is pretty interesting for Rosario, and he's really had a, a power spike this year. You cited the 21 home runs and just uh, a, a, a few uh, plate appearances less last year, only 12 home runs at, at double A. So moving up the level really uh, cranked up the power and maintained the the batting average, um, the walk rate, the strikeout rate, all that uh, carried over, uh, but with more power. So really encouraging in the steals too, which you mentioned. So, um, and, and, you know, initially I thought, well, couldn't there be time taken away from Hassan Kim? And I will admit DVR, maybe I just really snoozed on this, but I was really surprised to see that so far this year with, um, you know, a, a little over a month left to go that Kim has been a three to four win player, depending on whether you're looking at F4, uh, F4 or B war. Uh, I found that really surprising. And obviously defense uh, accounts for a lot of that, but uh, unfortunately for Rosario, that means that the Padres can't really afford to sit Kim very often. Yeah. Kim, I, I think is a, a great mono league player, a good temporary fill in for 15 team mixed leagues. I think the defense will continue to drive that playing time next season as well. I don't know if we're ever going to see anything in the major leagues that were, were that are as interesting as what he was doing at the end of his time in the KBO back when there was, you know, there was a 30 homer, 21 steal season his last year in Korea. 
I don't know if he's ever going to do anything quite that good, but maybe it's going to be the speed that comes through even more. He's now 9 for 11 this season as a base dealer. He was 6 for 7 last year, so if he keeps getting on base at a 330-ish clip, which has always been this season, maybe there's a 15 to 20 steal season that could come from Hassan Kim at some point in the future. But nice to see him taking that step forward because after a pretty slow start, he played better, it seemed, in the second half last year. The final numbers didn't reflect that, and with war, at least, in the glove, it's all sort of reflected now in some of the metrics that we look at. And let's talk about Hunter Brown, not promoted yet, but going to join the Astros when rosters expand on September 1st. I think the expectation is that he'll probably give them innings out of the bullpen down the stretch, but Brown is a really interesting pitcher, and I think the thing that always jumps off the page when I look at Hunter Brown is the strikeout rate. We've seen big strikeout rates from him at AA as recently as last year. We're seeing it again this year at the AAA level. It comes with a high walk rate, but we're seeing something that's at least acceptable at AAA. It was a 9.7% walk rate last year for Brown at that level over 51 innings, 10.6% this year over 106 innings. You can live with that as long as you don't give up homers. And Hunter Brown sort of stopped giving up homers this year despite pitching in some very hitter-friendly environments. Uh, stretch run expectations versus 2023 expectations. How do you feel about Hunter Brown knowing that the Astros have brought plenty of players up as relievers only to quickly make them starters and watch them have a lot of success? Yeah, that's clearly the path that they're setting out for Brown, and they, that's been signaled with uh, the change in role at the AAA level. So, uh, good to that we'll be able to see how uh, he makes the the conversion over to uh, the major leagues uh, over the last few weeks. Uh, so, in terms of your question, you know, the rest of this season versus 2023, obviously, you know, I think you kind of implied the answer that does seem to be getting uh, prepared for a starting role uh, with the Astros, and there's clearly a lot more value there than as a piggyback pitcher or uh, you know uh, long relief um so yeah i'm really happy to see that that walk rate this year has been at a tolerable level that'll play as long as it doesn't expand too much uh moving up to the majors and uh could be a great uh, source of strikeouts as soon as next year i started thinking about this rundown in the context of who is the spencer strider of 2023 because around this time last year I think it was Matt Eddy yeah it was Matt Eddy from Baseball America uh, joined me as a guest on this show we talked about a handful of players uh, I know Matt Brash came up in, in that conversation and I'm pretty sure we talked about Spencer Strider as well but Strider Strider kind of exceeded expectations a year ago because he pitched at four different levels and the numbers where he spent most of his time at double a the strikeout rate was great. The walk rate was a little high. He kept the home runs in check. It's a very similar profile to what Brown has been doing in the minor leagues. I think the key difference, though, Hunter Brown has a deeper arsenal. Hunter Brown might have three-plus pitches, and there are still questions about the command, which are reflected in those numbers, but this is a clear what-could-go-right sort of arm if you're thinking about AL-only leagues for next year, especially endgame AL-only leagues, where... Brown might not have a defined role for the Astros to begin the year. Don't worry about that. There are such good skills here that it could pay off in a really big way. So I think Brown at least looks the part of someone that could have a Strider-like breakout for next year. If you're trying to fish in the right pool, I think that would be a good place to start. 
Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's get to some injuries. Uh, Francisco Alvarez, catcher in the Mets system, uh, has an ankle injury that could end his season. So I guess our hopes that he might come up and contribute in some form, either as a part-time catcher or part-time DH or heavy DH, that appears to be something we we'll have to wait until 2023 to see. Uh, so a bit of a disappointing ending for Alvarez. Well, and a disappointing uh, lead-up to this end as well because he hasn't put up good offensive numbers at AAA Syracuse, 180 batting average, six home runs, and 141 plate appearances. And what I try to remind myself is that that's not that far off from the types of numbers that MJ Melendez put up at AAA before he got the call. And granted, Melendez was doing that in a little bit less playing time. So you can use your imagination and think that maybe, you know, he would have rebounded given the chance, but instead he, he rebounded at the major league level. So, uh, you know, maybe uh, we don't need to take that so seriously with Alvarez. It's just kind of a head scratcher DVR because this is somebody who's, uh, you know, at a young age had no problem offensively at the lower levels. So it, it's a little hard to figure out what happened at AAA. Um, and I don't know if maybe that slows his progress at all in 2023, given that James McCann still has a uh, couple of years left on his deal. Yeah, I, I think with Alvarez, I'm, this is pure speculation, something I'd have to dig into more, and maybe I'll get a chance to catch up with, with Tim Britton and Will Salmon about this, or maybe Keith Law has some insight into this too. I wonder if the types of, of pitching vary enough between double A AA and triple A where the crafty breaking and off speed starters that are usually stacked up in most organizations at triple A, if, if something about those arsenals is giving Alvarez fits, like if he's been demolishing fastballs coming through the system and the last part of his game is just dealing with closer to big league sort of secondaries, maybe it's something along those lines, just I'm um, purely spitballing because it's strange to see a strikeout rate go up at AAA given the AAA environment so far. The other explanation could be that it's just 141 plate appearances, so there's still a decent bit of noise in there. Uh, but the amazing thing with Alvarez, if you have him in a long-term league and you're looking at what's happening at AAA and you're discouraged by the slash line, I don't think you should be. This is a, a hit-over-defense catcher the entire way, and he's 20 at AAA. You mentioned MJ Melendez, who turned things around after his age 20 season. MJ Melendez was playing at high A when he was 20. That was the year that he had almost a 40% strikeout rate at high A. And look where he is now just a few years later. So I, I could see some people getting a little bit flustered by what's happening right now with Alvarez. But we're still going to talk about a guy that was 20 years old 
and popped 24 homers as a catcher between double A and triple A at age 20. And he's had a double digit walk rate every single place he's played so far. Those skills should play just fine eventually in the big leagues. I think it's just one more round of adjustments before we see him in early 2023. And I guess the question would be, once he comes up, even if the Mets want to keep James McCann in the lineup for his ability to hold and you know, uh, manage the staff, how much will they DH Alvarez right away? I think when they bring him up, they're going to want to play him a lot because a lot can change in that lineup between now and next season. But the critique of the Mets has been that they don't have enough power. Their offense puts runs on the board, but they don't do enough damage. Alvarez does help to fix that. So barring the addition of multiple impact bats where that DH spot gets really crowded, I do think the playing time outlook is still pretty favorable for Alvarez with the big league club next year. That makes sense. Uh, And it's good to put this season into perspective because like you say, 20 years old, still uh, hitting with a good amount of power, even uh, at AAA. I mean, the power was down a bit, but nothing that you would worry about if you just isolate that part of the stat line uh, for somebody so young for the level. Um, So probably nothing to worry about. And if it does slow his uh, next promotion, it's probably not by much. I thought Natty Ice was good when I was 20 years old, Al. So let's just, uh, you know, <laughs> let's, just have, let's have some perspective with Francisco Alvarez. Uh, Grayson Rodriguez is starting up a rehab assignment this week, and uh, he's not returned to the AAA level yet. But timetable-wise, I don't know if he'll get all the way back and get promoted down the stretch. It could depend on what's going on with the Orioles at the end of September, right? If they're still within arm's reach of a playoff spot, then Grayson Rodriguez is one way that team could get better. I think we've we've wondered all season with this long-term lat injury if he'd be a good candidate to end up in the Arizona Fall League. So a lot to still be determined as it goes with Grayson Rodriguez. Uh, Dustin Harris, an outfielder in the Rangers organization, unlikely to return at AA this season. Basically, any player that's hurt at the end of the season, any sort of higher-end prospect who's not that far away from the big leagues, looks like a candidate for the Fall League. Yeah, and it'd be uh, you know, interesting to see how he does there. Not that you can really carry away too much in terms of the the stats in the fall league, but just to see how he, he plays there. And I, I think that there's an opportunity if he doesn't make a big splash in the fall league uh, for, for Harris, maybe to be somebody that you could target in the off season in your dynasty leagues, because he hit just 257 at double a Frisco this year. The profile was pretty much the same as it's been. Uh, he's a line drive hitter who, as long as he maintains that profile figures to hit for average wherever he goes. So, uh, I think there's a, a dynasty by low opportunity there. Yeah, I'm a little surprised that the the average dropped as much as it did. He runs well, so the the ball's in play. We should be talking about a guy that doesn't have a 279 BABIP. That's kind of a, a number that jumps off the page for me, given the rest of the profile here. Uh, at least average speed, but he, he seems like he knows how to pick his spots. I mean, look back at the stolen base track record going back to last year. 20 for 21 as a base dealer at low A, 5 for 6 during a brief time at high A late last season, and now 19 for 24 this year in 85 games at double A. So you put that with some power, the ability to hit the ball all over the field, and a good idea of the strike zone. I would agree there's a relative window here to possibly make a move for Dustin Harris. Uh, Frequently discussed outfielder Jackson Churio is back from an elbow injury. He homered Sunday at high A Wisconsin, so he appears to be 
just fine after missing time with that injury. And then Brennan Davis, who at one point looked like was not going to get back on the field before the end of the 2022 season, is making progress in a rehab assignment. He's currently at high A, so he has not gone all the way back to the level at which he was previously playing at AAA. But according to Patrick Mooney of The Athletic, Davis is among the players who is scheduled to go to the Fall League for extra at-bats. So if you're going to the Fall League this year, I think you're going to see plenty of interesting prospects, and Brendan Davis is definitely within that group. And he is definitely one to watch, because I do worry a little bit uh, about really any hitter coming back from back surgery. So uh may take a while for him to to find his, uh, find his groove again. Uh, be really interested to see how he does in the Fall League. A couple of level changes to get to just briefly. Jackson Job is now at the high A level in the Tigers organization, made his debut over the weekend, went five innings, struck out three, only walked one, gave up one earned run. Job had spent most of the season at low A with a nice strikeout rate, 26.3%, I think is really solid for a guy that just turned 20 at the end of July, making his full season debut. Um, he's had an issue with home runs this year, and I think the, the thing that will always really kind of skew the perception of Jackson Job is the Tigers had other players that people wanted them to take in that spot. And I think that's always going to be there a little bit in terms of maybe having us round down on what Job has accomplished. It, true, if you were redrafting and you had that pick yourself, you probably wouldn't take him with the third overall pick, but someone would have taken him as the 10th or the 12th overall pick. He would have gone as an early first rounder nonetheless. And it's a good fastball, good slider, such a young guy. Like I, I don't. When I build teams in keeper and dynasty leagues, I don't have a lot of pitching on them. But I wonder if if Job can live outside of the top 100 range on the prospect list up to like the double A level. I kind of wonder if he'll end up on a bunch of my teams later as people sort of you know, forget about him or just as the expectations for him continue to mellow out compared to where they were when the Tigers took him third overall just a year ago. Yeah, well, and again, the fact that maybe because a lot of uh, people were hoping the Tigers would go a different route and maybe that th- there's a little bit of uh, of a validation for them here uh, with uh, a good but not you know outstanding performance at, at Lakeland, a uh, 26.3% strikeout rate. Uh, so if that kind of levels off in that, that, uh, that vicinity, then, yeah, I think that expectations for him in Dynasty Leagues are going to be uh, a, a little less robust. So I, I think you make an excellent point there. Uh, also, this uh, first start at high A was pushed back a little bit because he slept funny and uh, hurt his back. So, uh, you know, good to see that he he came out of that and, you know, put, put forward a good start uh, in his high A debut. Got one more promotion that I wanted to mention on this episode, uh, Jordan Lawler. Up at double A now, which is just uh, amazing. Started the season at low A, didn't seem like he was really being tested there. Played really well at high A over a 30-game stretch. Uh, Was showing a lot of speed, not quite as much in-game power, but still really good numbers. 40% better than league average by WRC+. If he even comes close to a league average performance over 20 to 25 games at double A to finish this season, I think it's going to lead some to wonder if we might actually see him in 2023. It would be an upset if we didn't. I mean, if you include the complex, this is his fourth level this year. Uh, so the, the Diamondbacks, in fact, the Diamondbacks seem to be taking a pretty aggressive approach overall, uh, as we you know, already talked about Corbin Carroll. Um, 
so I mean that that's an encouraging thing for Lawler, and um, you know we'll have a little bit of chance to see how he does at this higher level. I'm very interested to see where some of the prospect analysts around the game put that ETA after seeing just how quickly Lawler has moved here in 2022. Let's get to our season roundup. Some of our biggest risers throughout the minors this season. Again, it's a grab bag. It's some of some of these guys are our top end prospects that we were excited about coming into the season and they've delivered on that potential. Some are guys that we hadn't really thought about at all prior to this season and some were just relative unknowns because of the the strange nature of the last couple of drafts. Of course, 2020 being a very short draft where there wasn't a lot of spring baseball because of the start of the pandemic and then even some of the fallout from that in 2021 seemed to create unusual amounts of value based on where some of these players went and what they've been able to do over the first year plus of their professional careers. Um, I want to mention Jackson Churio again at the top here because I think of all the names I've seen as a possible best player I saw this season across Twitter, the scouting community, I think Jackson Churio would receive the most votes if we were tallying all that up. That was a pretty common thing that we were seeing uh, even prior to his move up to high a Wisconsin earlier this summer. Yeah. Hard to argue with that. Um, so definitely going to be much more in demand, uh, in, in dynasty drafts, uh, this, this coming off season than, uh, than a year ago, uh, just, uh, remains to be seen exactly when he will arrive in, uh, in Milwaukee. I think we had Kyle Manzardo uh, mentioned on a show recently as someone that was really standing out at the, it was the, either the high A roundup. He'd just been pro to the double A. His numbers are ridiculous. He, he's he got almost identical slash lines. He's at 368, 420, 632 through his first 17 games at double A. Manzardo just turned 22 in the middle of July. I think he's a pretty clear you know first base only, or at least a player that has pretty limited defensive upside. But the the bat is so good at this point. I'm, I'm really interested to see how long he stays at double A if they return him to that level in the Rays organization to begin next season, or if this continues to go well over the final month, if they'll actually give him a shot at triple A to begin his 2023 campaign. But it just looks like a guy that's going to hit enough to make an impact at a position where the bar is actually very high. Yeah, it would be a huge upset if he weren't with the Rays at some point next season, uh, even if he goes back to double A, which wouldn't surprise me because he hasn't been up there for, for really that long. So unless he goes back and I mean, we do see this sometimes with players, right? Where they, they finish the year at one level, they come back and for whatever reason, uh, the, the numbers drop off, but unless that happens dramatically, it's hard for me to imagine him either not going straight to the Rays from double A or, um, you know, spending a little bit, of, a bit of time at triple A and then getting called up. So, uh, you know, we'll, I think these last few weeks we'll have something to say about whether or not Manzardo is getting drafted in redraft leagues next spring. Yeah, it's possible, especially in AL only and, and draft and hold scenarios. Uh, one Rays broader question while we're talking about their prospects and thinking about Josh Lowe's performance at triple A this year, Josh Lowe has hit 306, 387, 539, He's got a 143 WRC plus. The problem, I guess, if there's a consistent problem, it's the strikeout rate is still high. He's got a 29.8% strikeout rate. It's 55 games because he's been more of an up and down guy for the Rays this season. Is there any reason to downgrade Josh Lowe compared to our expectations we had coming into the season? I mean, if we do, 
it has to be based on the inability to find footing at the big league level so far rather than any sort of step back at, at the AAA level. It just seems like he's conquered AAA, and now it's the question of when the Rays are finally going to turn over a regular job for him. This is one of the frustrating things about trying to roster Tampa Bay's prospects in keeper dynasty redraft everywhere is they don't always break in as quickly as you'd hope, and they don't always have that clear path to just hold down a spot once they get the opportunity. I imagine Lowe will probably wind up in some sleeper columns next year. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think uh, if there isn't too much hype in that, uh, you know, in that regard, that he's somebody that should be downgraded, not necessarily because we sh- we have no reason to believe that he can't uh, break out uh, at the major league level, but just because I think expectations are going to be so much lower uh, with him being a post-hype prospect now. So, um, you know, I think all in all, from a fantasy perspective, that's that's a good thing. If you look at his numbers at the big league level during his more recent stint with the club, so that would have been June 20th through July 30th, Josh Lowe hit 239 with a 299 OBP and a 342 slugging percentage. That that last number is surprisingly low. It's still a 90 WRC plus because of the offensive environment of this season. So only 10% worse than league average. He's a good defender in center field, a position that matters. If that slash line is what he did, like over a longer period of time, he'd be stuck in the bottom third of the order, but he'd probably play against all righties and then just sit against lefties, given given the situation. It'd be disappointing for us, but I don't know. I guess I'm looking at that more recent window and saying he, he was closer to holding his own than falling on his face. So I'm still holding out hope that there actually could be a pretty good 2023 here. And the Rays have a bit of a talent log jam on that 40-man roster, so maybe trading Josh Lowe is part of the solution. Uh, maybe a season in which you know Kevin Kiermeyer is not on the roster anymore to begin the year. Maybe that changes how they look at center field. There's a few things that will be a little bit different about this team going into next season. Maybe that works in in his favor as well. Um, Ellie De La Cruz, sort of the the other Jackson Churio type player, except there was more hype around De La Cruz to begin the season. I think people were already ready, prepared for the the step forward. And it happened this year. It's been a great season for him in the minor leagues. The only real wart in the profile is that the K rate really still needs to come down. We're talking about a guy that had a 30.6% K rate this season in the minor leagues. Um, We've talked about the general concerns about swing and miss in a prospect profile. Age to level is one way to really soften that because Ellie De La Cruz won't turn 21 until January, and he's already played partial season is probably going to finish with 45 to 50 games at double a by season's end and the results are excellent even with that strikeout rate he's been 54 percent better than league average at double a this year because he has been drawing more walks he is showing that power already and he's doing some damage on the base paths too he's now a combined 36 for 40 between high a and double a this season as a base stealer on top of hitting 28 homers between the two levels and the speed probably also has been helping with the batting average. And I don't know how that translates. At some point, I need to or somebody needs to, to do that research. Maybe somebody already has, and I just have missed it. But um, see how minor league BABIPs translate to the major leagues because he's been a, a very consistent hitter for average on balls and play as a minor leaguer, which has really uh, blunted the impact of those high strikeout rates. And I, I just am really skeptical 
that, um, you know, certainly not on the level, you know, just for this year, for example, at double A, a 416 BABIP, three, uh, 389 at high A. Uh, maybe he comes up and is a 310, 320, and, and that, you know, that helps somewhat. But um, I imagine that the rookie year for him, which I would assume would be next year, um, you know, could be a little disappointing. But long term, you know, given the age to level uh, production, uh, I am no less enthused about him than, uh, you know, than I was uh, at the beginning of the season. Yeah, yeah, it's a great 2022 season for De La Cruz to this point. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Uh, Ezekiel Tovar, I think, was one of our first level roundup players that we put out there as a big riser. And his season has been limited by a wrist injury, or no, groin injury for him. He hasn't played since June 29th. Should debut probably at some point in 2023, just given that the Rockies don't have a ton blocking him. I realize they do have middle infielders on the big league roster, but I think once they deem Ezekiel Tovar ready, they'll just move somebody on the roster to a different spot. I can't believe how good this season was compared to his previous ones. Tovar just turned 21 on the first day of August, but it's a 153 WRC plus on a 318, 386, 545 line, 13 homers, 17 steals, only caught three times. If his season's over, which I don't think it's been deemed as such, that's a great step forward for a guy whose previous high water mark was a low A. 119 WRC plus that came with a pretty low walk rate and a lot of questions about how he'd handle the strike zone as he advanced. So really good age to level performance, but just one of the bigger steps forward in all the minor leagues. Yeah, step up in terms of power, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the higher walk rate this season. Uh, really exciting and not somebody who puts the ball on the ground very much. So you can only imagine what he might do at Coors Field couple more names that stood out to me on the hitting side. Addison Barger, who was brought to my attention simultaneously almost by <laughs> Keith Law and Eno Saris last week on different podcasts on the same day. They both brought him up. And I was like, where'd this guy come from? What? No one, no one mentioned Addison Barger in my world until two people on the same day with different methods came to the same place. A uh, lot of swing and miss in his game. He spent the season between high A and double A, 26% K rate at both stops. But a 300, 360, 500-plus slash line at both stops. Now 21 combined homers. He's got some speed as well. It's a lot of pull side damage, but it's uh, it's a really interesting profile that 
should play at the big league level. I think the the concern you'd have with a player like this is if it's mostly pull side power from a lefty, he might end up on a big side platoon, especially on a good team in Toronto. That's the other part of this. The 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 difficulty of fishing and the good organizations for prospects that are popping up like this is when they come up, they might not have an everyday role to themselves right away. Well, and the pull side power is something that's really important to pay attention to because uh, while it gives you some hope that the, the power numbers will roughly translate when he get when he goes up to AAA in the majors, that it really makes you question the 300-plus batting average that he's put together this year uh, combined across high A and, and double A. So kind of going back to my comments about De La Cruz, uh, I wish I had a better grasp of how to, to translate those minor league BABIP numbers for uh, for the major leagues. But knowing that he is an extreme pole hitter, I think it's very, you know, it's very fitting to have some skepticism about him being anything close to a 300 hitter as a major leaguer without even some more improvement in the strikeout rate. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I just, I mean, I'm looking at this and I'm I'm intrigued for sure. So I think if you're in a deep dynasty keeper league and, and Barge are still out there, take your chance because there's a lot of ways it can go right. But that batting average in particular just looks like a, a bit of a barrage. As, uh, as he continues to make a lot of hard contact in the minors, but probably pulls the ball into the shift a lot as he continues to advance. Uh, Bo Naylor really saved his prospect status this season. I'm blown away at just how good he is compared to how much he struggled upon arrival at A last season. But I think this would be sort of a lingering, there was no 2020 minor league season like hangover profile where you look at the age 21 performance at double A and it just, it doesn't even make sense compared to what Naylor had done previously. The K rate went through the roof. He's shown power. He's shown speed, which is really nice to have for a catcher. And it's going to lead some to wonder if there's a little bit of like a JT Real Mudo profile. I do think the key difference, I think there's going to be more swing and miss with Naylor. So I don't think you're getting the batting average that JT Real Mudo has been offering us for most of his big league career. But I do think we've got a pretty good read on who the Guardians catcher, the primary catcher for 2023 is going to be with the season that Naylor has put together between AA and AAA, kind of splitting his time at those two levels almost evenly. And he's not blocked at all. So um, I think we can definitely count on Naylor to play a big role for the Guardians next year. And you mentioned the stolen bases. I mean, this is, you know, we see catchers that have seven, eight stolen bases. And you think, oh, okay, must must be a little bit of speed there, some good base running. Naylor has 19 stolen bases in uh, 23 attempts this year. He was 10 for 10 last year. So good efficiency with just, uh, you know, a good bulk number there. So, um, yeah, that, uh, I think adds to his value quite a lot. And, and even without the steals, uh, I'd, I'd be excited for him to arrive next year. Yeah, a lot of ways it can go right for Naylor from a fantasy perspective once that opportunity comes in Cleveland. It should be very early 2023. Uh, looking a little further into the future in that Guardians organization, Angel Martinez, a shortstop, already playing at A. He won't turn 21 until January. That alone is pretty exciting. But he's got power. He's got speed. He controls the strike zone. And the hit tool looks really solid as well. Uh, a late shout-out is due here to Jason Panini, he's now a scout for the Twins, used to tweet and write about prospects publicly a few years ago. He was on Martinez at least two years ago. I think it was more like three. I think it was 2019 when he was a complex ball player. So Martinez was on my on my radar way back then, and I just kind of kept an eye on him to see 
how right is this scouting report? And it looks like it's on the money. He looks like a guy that's going to be just flying up prospect lists in the reasonably near future. Yeah, yeah, and a great a great call by him there, and uh, and by you as well. So, um, you know, really good strikeout to walk ratios and uh, enough power to make him intriguing. I was just, I was a hundred percent just latching onto what Jason wrote about on El Martinez. <laughs> like I've. At uh, anything that's happening now, I'm looking at from a number scouting perspective and saying, "Hey, Jason, Jason was right. You should uh, you should listen here and, and take advantage of this opportunity to get a possible impact shortstop that I, I'm going to guess spends most of next year at AAA. But by by the time we get to 2024, could be a starter for the Guardians. Uh, one more hitter that stood out to me, Colton Kowser. I mean, not a secret. The guy went fifth overall in a draft, but. Uh, he's going to see his third level of the year with a late season promotion to AAA, and, and he really got better after going up to Double A this season. A 184 WRC plus. The K rate went down once he moved up a level. He's always walked a ton. Kind of funny that the power speed balance flipped with the move up a level as well. He's hitting for more power at Double A than he was hitting for at High A, uh, so he's stealing fewer bases, but. Another success story in the Orioles organization, less surprising given that he was a fifth overall pick just a year ago, but Kowser is moving about as fast as anyone could have expected. Yeah, and it's just incredible, uh, the the transformation of the Orioles just over the last few months uh, in the wild card hunt as we speak. And then you've got uh, Gunnar Hansen, Jordan Westberg, and, and Kowser uh, on, on the way. Um, it's going to be fun next year. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, any other bats that really caught your eye over the course of this season, Al? Guys that either moved up a couple of levels or just exceeded expectations? Uh, well, I think in terms of um, the expectations, Alexander Canario is somebody who definitely stands out because just a, a big uptick in power uh, from him. Uh, just a, a, a lot of power. Um so somebody who's definitely much more on my radar now than he was at the start of the year. And I would say just in the last couple of months, John Kenzie Noel, um, the first baseman outfielder for the Guardian in the Guardian system, uh, was somebody who I just thought was intriguing because of just a ridiculous power profile, uh, but no, just no batting average uh, upside there apparently. And uh, since getting uh, moved up, he's uh, he's really cut back on the strikeout rate. So gone from somebody who to me was kind of a curiosity, but didn't really seem to have a major league future to somebody now that I, I really can take, you know, take pretty seriously in dynasty leagues. Yeah. Uh, I love it when that happens. That's the, it, it's like part of the, part of the fun of, of playing in a keeper or dynasty league. It, it, it's a, it's like a different set of skills, even though it's a similar set of skills, like looking for players, finding reasons to believe before you really see it in the results, and then watching it play out over multiple years in some cases. And, and I, I think that's one of the more one of the more challenging things, but also one of the most fun things about trying to play keeper and dynasty fantasy baseball. Let's go to the pitching side for a moment. Tanner Bibby in the Guardians organization. I don't know why it's all Guardians prospects all of a sudden, but doesn't walk guys, missed a lot of bats, was a fifth rounder in 2021, so he's flying, might even debut as quickly as next season. And because of the organization, I think it automatically makes you think, hmm, is this another Shane Bieber type? Because this is sort of what Shane Bieber's profile looked like as he was coming through uh, the Guardian system a few years back. Yeah, uh, and I, I think him being in the Cleveland organization 
it sounds like gives you a little bit of, of extra confidence in, in what he's done uh, this year. And, and I would say for me too. And yeah, I, I, uh, I think that the Bieber comparison is an apt one and I think could could be up um, probably not early next year, but, but at some point. Yeah, kind of split the innings this season almost evenly between high A and double A so far. Finishing at double A so far with a 145 ERA and a .85 whip. The K rate came down with the move from high A to double A, but the walk rate has been excellent, and the home run rate's been very good for Bibby as well. Uh, we've talked a lot about Diamondbacks prospects on this show over the course of the season. I think Brandon Fott is one of their many pitching prospects that should be on the radar for a call-up early next season, posting great results at Reno, which we know is a really tough environment to pitch in. Only 31 innings there to this point, but a 2.03 ERA and a .81 whip, 32 Ks. He's not hurting himself with walks. I, I think there's a ton in this profile to like. There has been a home run problem at just about every minor league stop, so I think that's going to be one skill that we're watching very closely once fought eventually gets a chance at the big league level. But I think he's probably a candidate for an opening day rotation spot out of spring training, maybe an underdog to get one, but someone that's going to be on our radar as an early season pickup within the first probably four to six weeks of next season. Yeah, I, I would definitely be much more excited about him than than Tommy Henry, and I don't mean that as, as any kind of uh, diss on Tommy Henry. I just I don't see his appeal really being you know much more than deeper leagues at this point. Maybe next year that changes, but yeah, Fott is somebody who potentially could be viable in twelve teamers. I I do think that the home runs could be more than just a, a minor issue, and you mentioned he's got a two point zero three ERA at Reno so far after five starts. Um, he has stranded every runner <laughs> that, uh, he's, he's put on other than, you know, I mean the, the homers, which obviously must be solo home runs that he's given up there. Uh, but the FIP and XFIP show him as a roughly five ERA pitcher so far there. So that's definitely something that, that Fod is going to have to solve. Um, and, and definitely, you know, pitching in Arizona is going to be, make that, make that a little bit easier, but, uh, it's a little, just a little bit of a caution there. So just as it works against Brandon Fott, it well, may have helped Corbin Carroll a little bit. We know Corbin Carroll's a, a very talented player, but it's not just Reno. That double-A Amarillo ballpark, I think we may have mentioned that on the show at some point this summer, that's one of the more hitter-friendly environments at double-A. So I think some of the home run issues might be the result of the home park especially. It's just a question of how much is it. Is it half? Is it three quarters? Is it a quarter? There's probably going to be some situational improvement, but of course, getting major league hitters out is a new challenge. So I, I, I would not be surprised if Fott's big league numbers are mysteriously, his ratios are mysteriously better than his double A ones, even though it's like, wow, how would that happen? Well, park factors are the main answer. How about some pitchers that have stood out to you so far this season, Al? Some surprises along the way? Well, I mean, Ricky Tiedemann, it doesn't seem like we, you know, maybe we can call him a surprise, but I mean, if we go in the time machine, uh, you know, back to the beginning of the season, uh, not getting the amount of hype that started to build during just this fantastic season uh, that Tiedemann has had, we haven't talked about Reese Olsen in a while, and he was uh, somebody that we mentioned frequently earlier in the year. And so I, he has not really fallen off my radar. He has stayed at double a Erie the entire season so far. So we haven't had an opportunity to see how he would do um, at the, at the triple a level, but kind of a, a reverse fought situation here where he's got a four, four, one ERA at Erie, but 
a great strikeout rate that that hasn't diminished at all um and you know decent walk and home run ratios for him uh so just been a bit of a babbit and strand rate victim at least uh, apparently uh and uh, even though you know tigers have had some good pitching prospects I would be surprised if, if Olsen wasn't in Detroit sometime uh, next season and um, very, very encouraging season for him at double A. Yeah, I think for a guy that had some questions about his command previously to see a 7.4% walk rate over more than 100 innings now at double A, that's a successful season for Reese Olsen for sure. I think the surprising thing with Ricky Tiedemann, at least for me, is just that he's cruised through three different levels and it doesn't really look like he's going to have any trouble at double A, even though he just turned 20 two weeks ago. I think he might actually have a chance to debut next season, even even on a really good Toronto team. So I, I time timetable surprise would probably be where I'm at. Um, another guy that command seems to be a little better than people expected it to be, at least for as young as he is right now. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll happily take it. Uh, Mason Montgomery is a name that I had not really thought about or seen at all this season. Another pitcher in the Rays organization, which always makes the rest of us jealous unless you happen to be a Rays fan. Uh, The the numbers at AA are not eye-popping in terms of the strikeout rate. It's the combined leaderboard that pulled me in because he had a 41.8% K rate. During his time at high A, just under 70 innings, a 181 ERA, a 109 whip. But even at double A, 351 for the ERA, 123 whip, strikeout per inning stuff. Walk rate hasn't gone up any higher against more advanced competition. Montgomery is at least on the longer term radar for me now. He is already 22 years old, uh, so not necessarily a, a total like pop-up guy that's a surefire future starter for the Rays, but probably a future at a minimum bulk guy with room for more than that. The scouting reports have always had good grades on his changeup, and I think we're probably going to be another full year away from getting a prolonged opportunity, but just someone that I'm at least putting onto watch lists for long-term leagues who was previously non-existent for me in those realms as a sixth-round pick just a year ago. Yeah, same No, same for me too. And the the you mentioned the, the decrease uh, in the strikeout rate going from high A to double A, and it's not. Uh, trivial. I mean, it's all he almost has cut that strikeout rate in half. Um, so I think that the, you know the watch list is is appropriate for no other reason, just to see how he does with more more exposure to Double A. I mean, it, was there fatigue setting in? What? Why is there such a dramatic drop in that strikeout rate? So I'd certainly be looking for that to be uh, rebounding somewhat in 2023. I had one more name, a reliever of all things, that I wanted to throw out there today: Carson Coleman. In the Yankees organization, I really wanted to know like, what he brings to the table. I haven't found a full scouting report just yet, but he had the third highest strikeout to walk rate in all the minor leagues if you're just looking for pitchers with at least 50 innings pitched, which does include relievers that have stayed healthy. Uh, they've been using him as a closer in the minors. I think he's got 16 saves combined between high A and double A this season. A 33rd round pick actually of the Rays back in 2019, now getting this chance to break through in the Yankees organization. Uh, So up to double A right now, relievers are not often pitchers that you're thinking about from a fantasy perspective. Do you ever make exceptions to that? Do you ever have guys that stand out maybe at double A or somewhere, somewhere in that range in the minor leagues that actually make you want to stash them for the future? You know, I 
years back, I, I actually would do that and it just rarely panned out for me. So I have to admit, I don't really do that anymore, but I'm, I'm just, I'm glad that you have brought Coleman to my attention because, uh, you know, the strikeout numbers uh, at both at high A and double A are really phenomenal. Um, so almost 40% at double A. So you figure if nothing else that Coleman's on the track for some sort of bullpen job, maybe as soon as next year. And, uh, you know, somebody definitely to watch, you know, very, very deep sleeper uh, for for saves at some point, uh, not next year, I would think, but um, definitely worth watching. Yeah, I just want to know a little more about the arsenal. Is it good enough to be a late inning arm at the big league level? Because he's a little old for the level right now, but I uh, tend to tend to trust Yankees pitching. It seems like they've got a pretty good handle on on developing guys coming through the system. Um, obviously, there are other guys that took big steps forward in the minors this year. This was not intended to be an all-encompassing episode because that would be like a week's worth of episodes to do that uh, with any sort of, of accuracy. But I'm sure we'll find a few other names as we move through the rest of the season, even though our Prospect Tuesday format is going to fade away for this season. So if you enjoyed this format, let us know. We're always thinking about how to uh, schedule the show out for next season. This was the first year we did it. Uh, Al, thanks for uh, taking part in this season-long experiment. Yeah, no, it's it's been fun. It's been fun. Yeah, no, we you know talked about this back in the off season and thinking about uh, you know how to approach it and everything. And um, yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun. Very you know the the research has been helpful to me. I hope it has been helpful to everybody out there listening. Yeah, it's kind of a learning process for us most weeks since we don't get to go out and watch minor league players the way a lot of other people can around this industry. So it's uh, it's always fun to get to know these new players that are not that far away from contributing at the big league level and not that far away from helping our fantasy teams in uh, many situations. You can find Al on Twitter at LMelkyRBB. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. If you don't have a subscription to The Athletic, you can get one for a dollar a month for the first six months at theathletic.com slash podcast. That's going to do it for this episode of The Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. We're back with you Wednesday with Under the Radar. 